But again, food is a weapon, and you can deny food to weaken people in their position. You can see how the disruption of conflict could be a huge impediment to getting these supplies out into the populations that need them. It's been difficult to get the general public uh, to be aware of this uh, issue. It seems like we have a very noisy world right now. This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hansen, and today we're discussing the famine in South Sudan, Northeast Nigeria, Somalia, and Yemen. And I'm here with Alicia Black, my colleague, who is the director of the Council's Global Food and Agriculture Program. Welcome, Alicia. It's good to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Let's begin by getting a, a picture of the current situation. As I mentioned, famine was declared in four countries in January. It's been projected that about 20 million people uh, are in need of emergency food assistance. And Stephen O'Brien, the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, called this the largest humanitarian crisis since the United Nations was founded in 1945. So where have we, where are we now? Have things gotten better since the famine declaration was declared? Or what is the situation? Yeah, so it is an extremely serious uh, uh, set of events here in these four countries. And I'll just start by saying where that is. So Northeast Nigeria specifically, not the entire country, uh, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. And um, in terms of whether it's gotten better or worse, I think that there's been a lot more definition that's been put around the, that 20 million number. So that's still part of the discussion. We're talking about 20 million people, but in fact, it may be uh, more than that. So for instance, I just uh, pulled a brief off of the World Food Program's website from just shy of a, a week ago, and they estimate that the total number of people who are in need in these four countries that meet the criteria for famine conditions uh, is around 30.3 million. Not all of those are the severest form of what, what we're discussing. 15 million of that falls into what they are targeting, which again does not mean that's the entire need. So it could it could be far worse than the 20 million, actually, if you think of um, who's on the brink of, uh, of famine conditions and those who are currently in them. Um, and in terms of improvement, I think it's, it's worth noting that there are regions where there's evidence now uh, of, of the fast response from the humanitarian community, which it was still delayed, but there were some that showed up and really supported WFP has caused stabilization in some regions. So in South Sudan, there are a couple of states where you can point to the conditions stabilizing, not necessarily rolling back famine, but it has, has stabilized. Unity State, I believe, in South Sudan is one, and that's in response to the humanitarian aid making it there. So on the whole, I don't think we can say that there is vast improvement. In fact, I, could, I think we could say that it, it remains a dire situation and that the, that the response has been insufficient globally, but in regions that are receiving aid, aid does work you can actually pull people back from the brink of, of starvation and, and hunger. And what are we talking about with famine? This this no doubt goes beyond just people are hungry and in, in need of, of food. Famine sounds like a very dramatic um, condition. What, what does it actually mean? Yeah, so there is actually a global classification of, of hunger and food insecurity. So I think people are perhaps conflating the idea of food insecurity in general with famine, um, and they are quite different. So this there's an, a, a scale, uh, a, gr a group uh, called FuseNet publishes something called the Integrated Phase Classification, which is globally accepted as the classification for famine, has five phases of food insecurity. And the fifth phase, which is the famine condition, um, actually says that in order to, to declare this particular classification, uh, at least one in five households in the area that you're surveying has to have um, extreme lack of food and other basic needs where starvation, death, and destitution are actually evident. So are not... Evident are evident. So, so not 20% of the families, right. you see that. 
Exactly. So if you were to travel to one of these places as World Food Program and many of the, the fine you know, international NGOs that are, that are serving in these communities are, um, you, you would see evidence of the, the absolutely devastating consequence of not getting enough food. Actual death and starvation is happening now, um, and they are battling uh, to, to pull it back from that. So when we're talking about 30 million people who are at threat, um, this is really a very dire condition. Right. And some of those people uh, are in the sort of lower phases I was talking about. So there's phase four, sort of an emergency, uh, and phase three is, is a crisis. So you don't want, if at all possible, you don't want to wait until everyone is in five because you're really talking about a lot of loss of human life. So that 30 million contains people who are in those pre uh, uh, dire circumstances as well, but who are always on the brink of, of falling into it. Um, and since conflict is really a part of these stories, um, this is in large part a man-made conflict, uh, a man-made famine. Excuse me. Um, food is is a is a is a is a unfortunately a great way to um, reduce. Um, a population's ability to fight back or to weaken their position in a conflict. And so while they might not be all classified in that phase five that I was talking about, uh, they could very quickly find themselves in that position due to the conflict that is overlaying these uh, famine conditions. Let's unpack that a little more. Yeah. Um, so what are the fundamental causes? I understand there have been droughts in some parts of, mm -hmm. of Africa, but um, why do we see famine occurring? Yeah, so there definitely are drought conditions that are contributing to the overall low production in these regions. Um, but there's also conflict. And as you might imagine, uh, it's very difficult to continue production as us usual if you're a farmer. Um, if there's if there's uh, unrest in your immediate community, it's also difficult to move food around if there are road blockades or other kind of um, conditions being set up by the conflict that would prevent movement of food from one region to another under normal circumstances. Um, so there's a, a, a drought condition that has been very serious um, in all of the countries. And then in three of the countries, we're entering the, the essentially what you call the hunger season or the dry season, which means it's already been really negative conditions. Now we're going into the part of year where uh, there's no food in sight for quite a while. You can't, uh, you can't harvest. You're waiting um, for the next year's crop to come in. And so this is the point at which it has potential to get a lot worse. And then the conflicts, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. In Northeast Nigeria, um, you know, we've all heard about Boko Haram. There is unrest in that particular region that is ongoing and the, the government is working to contain that. Um, in South Sudan, I think many people are familiar with the unfortunate kind of re re repetitive conflict that's been ongoing between various groups in that, in that region. Um, I think there were high hopes when South Sudan became a became a, a state uh, several years ago, and unfortunately, that has not held um, sort of the plans that were envisioned at that time. And there's a lot of a lot of conflict. There's a huge exodus of people and a large influx of refugees in the surrounding countries, um, leaving South Sudan. Um, in Yemen, there's also a very serious conflict that just hasn't gotten a lot of reporting. I would say in the United States, or maybe uh, more of it being covered in Europe. Um, but the the thing that makes Yemen so serious is that it actually relies on pretty much a single port to bring that food in and out. 70% of people, 70% 70, 70 of the food imports are brought in through a single port right now. And if uh, if the the use of that port is reduced any further, there can be very serious consequences. If it's shut, it would be incredibly serious. And so um, 
that's a, a look at some of these in Somalia. Same thing. There's conflict ongoing. Somalia is an interesting case where there are parts of Somalia where you could argue that there's quite a lot of development going on and agriculture is improving and, and you would say that it looks um, very optimistic. And then there are parts of Somalia where it is in deep conflict and, and it's sliding backwards. And so it's in all of these places, it's a tale of a regional um, set of issues. It's not the entire country. It's 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 particular uh, hotspots. What's interesting to me about, about that analysis is that oftentimes one hears that you know, famine, these conditions, they just happen in Africa. There's not enough, not enough rain or something, you know, desert conditions. But what you're suggesting is that there are things, there are conditions that produce uh, famines that aren't externally determined, and therefore Africa wouldn't have to suffer them. That's right. Eternally. Yeah, and I think it's important to talk about famines other people might be thinking of right now, right? So I think everyone remembers the famine in the 80s if they were around or even if they weren't. I think a lot of people have heard of the famine in 1984 in Ethiopia. Huge loss of life there. Um, that also had a, a, a drought that underpinned it, um, but it had it had some, some human uh, conditions as well that influenced it. Um, Ethiopia today is is a is an example of economic growth around the world, not just on the continent. It has one of the highest GDP growth rates in the world, and that's being driven by their agricultural sector. You notice they are not on this list. Yeah, and, and they're right next to Somalia, they're right? right? They're in this region. That's right. Um, and, and that's because Ethiopia has made a very deliberate set of investments around improving their agricultural system, working with their small-scale farmers. And they've also worked with the international community to improve their own ability to respond in times of crisis. Um, so when there was uh, when there were sort of drought conditions uh, just I think two years ago in Ethiopia, they actually saw greater resilience than they have than they than other other countries around them did see, and that was because they had planned and prepared. So this is not something that has to keep happening. And I think it's good to remind ourselves that um, you know in the in the 20th century there were there were many famines, and they were not all in Africa. They were not all even in Asia. Um, many of uh, the countries that we see today that are that are world leading in terms of their economies and their growth uh, suffered famines. Um, around 70 million people, it's estimated, died in the 20th century due to famines. Uh, 30 million of those were in China in the 60s. Um, and so this is something that can be a thing of the past. If we, we were able to track uh, death going back much further, we would see that this used to be a more frequent occurrence. It is becoming less and less frequent. And I really believe that in our lifetime, it will not exist anymore if there's political will uh, to solve it. So what are the consequences of, of famine, both on a societal level as well as an individual level? Yeah, so I think all of us can imagine the catastrophic consequences of going through a famine. I mean, there uh, at least we can imagine. We can't, thank God, most of us don't have the experience of going through that. Um, but I think we can imagine what that would do to your uh, to your family, to, to lose a family member or to yourself to suffer the health consequences on the immediate term. Short-term consequences of hunger, uh, I think we're we're all fairly um, familiar with. You know, you get a fuzzy-headed, you get tired. There are certain sort of immediate effects, but over the long term, let's say you're a, um, a pregnant mother um, in one of these countries, uh, the consequences for your your baby, especially if you're in, you're in the earliest parts of your um, pregnancy, can be pretty disastrous. I mean, we're talking about birth defects. Um, you're talking about pre, you know, preterm birth or underweight, and we know from um, from evidence that goes back now quite a ways that um, the effects of undernutrition on that infant uh, go on for their entire lives. There's a lot of times um, stunting uh, physically, which means they're short or small for age, um, even into adulthood. They would have cognitive stunting, which could mean lower IQ. 
Um, it, that, those things translate to low performance in school if you have low IQ, and those things translate to low overall economic um, earnings in your lifetime. And then take that a step further, so there's actually evidence to extrapolate to the country level. Um, in places that have extreme uh, levels of stunting, which is many countries around the world still, I would say you know, 25% of your, of your children is extreme, which is what we have globally. One in four children are still stunted. Um, this can cause up to a 12% uh, reduction in your GDP if your population has a high percentage of stunting. So we're talking about family level effects, your own personal effects, uh, the economy of your of your region, and even your entire country and their pro its progress can be hindered by uh, children being born stunted, which unfortunately in, in a famine is one of the effects. And then I'll just mention one, one other thing, which is that there is evidence to also show that this gets passed on, it can be passed on intergenerationally. Um, so the Dutch hunger famine, or Dutch hunger winter, excuse me, um, in the last days of World War II, unfortunately, there was a group of um, of Dutch folks who were who were blockaded by the Nazis, um, trying to deny them food. Again, food is a weapon, and you can deny food to weaken people in their position. And uh, eventually, that blockade was was um, was ended uh, by support from the U.S., U.K., and Canada to bring in food. But in the intermediary period, that winter, people went through famine conditions. They starved many people, and people more people died there. I understand than in the Netherlands in World War II, in that famine. Um, and some enterprising researchers decided to follow them throughout their um, their lives, follow their children, and set up a, a controlled study, essentially looking at these effects. And what they've been able to find is all of the effects I mentioned, the negative effects I talked about, um, they found in immediately right in people who um, survived or had or had children um, and were pregnant during the famine. But they were also able to find that there were effects that were passed on generationally. So the children of of survivors had effects. There's even evidence to show that there may be genetic markers on the grandchildren of those of those people, noting that there was a famine condition. So yeah. things like yeah. schizophrenia, coronary uh, art, uh, heart disease, these things uh, show up even in further out. So potentially very long-term effects on society. Long-term effects, and I don't want to paint a picture that says this can't uh, be... Uh, fixed or that it you know this is a lost cause and so we should abandon in fact there's other evidence to show there can be catch-up effects and that we have we've really advanced a great deal in, in being able to um, address acute malnutrition they're great products that, that have been developed by the health community and the food community in concert and um, I firmly believe that you can you can start to turn this around as, as quickly as we can find the resources to do so but there are long-term effects of course and certainly the Netherlands is doing just fine now uh, they are of course absolutely and they are in fact, one of the big supporters of international agriculture, and they show up um, because this is in their psyche, as the Irish do and as many do around the world, because it's personal. So let's talk about that. What has been the international response uh, to this famine? So, um, you know, I, I would say that there's been, it's been difficult to get the general public uh, to be aware of this uh, issue. It seems like we have a very noisy world right now. And even though this is a catastrophic set of events for people uh, right now, it seems it's hard to get the attention. And the reason that matters is when people um, say that they support uh, their country showing up in these times of crisis, they respond more and more effectively. And so I think having the general public be aware and be active and vocal makes a difference. And in a time when there's so much in the news and so much uh, to talk about, it seems like it's been particularly hard to raise the alarm bell, despite the fact that this is a famine in four different countries with very large numbers and, and very severe consequences for inaction. That said, 
Um, there are countries that are showing up, and I have to say the U.S. is always a, has been a leader in, in uh, global humanitarian assistance around food and support for agriculture as a long-term strategy uh, to, to stem the effects of hunger. And uh, this year, um, Congress actually passed uh, a, a resolution to give additional money for the famine in the amount of $329 million, which means that for these countries alone, <clears throat> the U.S. is giving $1.2 billion dollars. Uh, to support famine relief, which is a huge amount of money in FY17, excuse me, fiscal year 2017. And um, other countries are showing up as well. The Germans just made another pledge recently. Several other countries have, have, have followed suit. Even so, the scale of this is so extreme, and it, it frankly, you know, came on uh, in four countries at once. These are somewhat geographically located, uh, but they're not in the exact same place, right? So it requires a lot of deployment of resources to reach them. They're in very difficult to reach locations, the people who are affected. Um, and so WFP, uh, World Food Program, has an appeal asking for um, additional resources. And they estimate that right now they only have 27% of the resources required to actually reach the people who are affected by the famine. So there's a massive funding gap. Um, and without the funding, they have to reduce rations. They have to neglect populations that need that help. Um, and so there needs to be a much greater response, despite the generosity by many countries. So it's now, now's the time. And give us a sense for how is that money used? What is a famine response look like? Yeah, so as I mentioned, a lot of these populations are in very remote locations within their country, um, being cut off from regular market access, regular, you know, I shouldn't say regular roads, good roads that allow you to get into cities is part of what makes you vulnerable. And um, so WFP has one of the largest logistical operations that you will find around the world. They have fleets of ships, they have boats uh, that go down rivers, they have um, airdrops of food. They, they have a, a big fleet of, uh, of trucks and temporary uh, warehouses that they construct. They have, they have become a very sophisticated uh, logistical uh, organization. And so what this would mean is that WFP would be securing um, access through very difficult uh, regions. They would be negotiating for peaceful transfer of that food with the warring factions that they would be dealing with, um, which often puts their lives in danger. And, and it's not just WFP. I, I want to mention that there are many other NGOs that are, that are supporting this work. But it involves coming up with a strategy um, and agreement that they can get the food through and, um, and then using the best uh, logistical power they have to do that. So in the most remote regions, you will see airdrops, which is what most people are familiar with, where you actually throw the food out of the back of a plane. But they generally try to actually secure access. It's, those are very expensive, and it's a long time in between flights. And you want to get as much food as possible into the region with as much regular access as possible. So this means bringing really basic staples. We're talking mostly about things like corn, maybe some beans, uh, some oil, some salt. Um, and distributing a ration. Oftentimes that ration is given to women because they're the ones that are cooking the food and know how to distribute it well within their communities. Um, and it's, it's very basic. It, it's it's life-sustaining. And, and in, the, in the cases of acute malnutrition, which is, you know, infants and babies that are, that are on the edge and really may have a difficult time even eating because they're so ill, um, there are pastes that have been developed out of things like peanut butter that are really rich with um, micronutrients. And it's kind of like a a big, a big boost of calories and micronutrients, and if you can deliver those, those really are life-saving for those for those children because their ability to eat normally often is hindered. The picture you paint really emphasizes the logistics challenge of this too. And to go back to what you were talking about before, uh, you can see how 
the disruption of conflict could be a huge impediment to getting these supplies out into the populations that need them. You know, I think I'll just say, you, you mentioned um, the risks to the people who are delivering these foods, right? And, and unfortunately, there have been attacks on humanitarian workers um, in recent memory. And I think I, it's commendable, the people who are on the front lines in these places, um, who are willing to go in day in, day out, despite the fact that there have been attacks on their own communities, um, including you know, northern Nigeria had an attack last year on the humanitarian community. Um, but they are absolutely relentless and committed. And so I think it's, uh, it's important to talk about how the conflict makes this even harder. And yet they are some of the most valiant kind of people out on the front lines uh, than, I, than I know. And who does this work? Uh, when a famine occurs and there's this huge mobilization, you know, there aren't people just kind of waiting around for a famine to happen that get landed in the field. Um, so where do these people come from and how is that, you know, how is that response organized? Yeah, so um, again, WFP often is is sort of the linchpin operator um, in many of these places. They're the lead on on emergency relief. And so I'll use them as an example, noting that the similar thing would be happening with a lot of these NGOs which is that when there's an, uh, an emergency operation uh, declared, a famine declared, saying, you know, the alarm bell has sounded, we are on, on the brink of things here, um, usually for quite a long time before that, WFP would have been monitoring all kinds of changes, right? They would be monitoring it with the international community. They'd be taking note. Perhaps they'd be deploying uh, a little bit of additional manpower or assistance to a particular region to see how they could um, address it and get on the, on, the, on the preventative side of it, if at all possible. But then once there's actually a famine declared, um, usually there, there is a, a, a discussion about how to redeploy resources, human resources, to those places. And many of these people have been involved in previous famine uh, response teams. There's a lot of organization uh, that goes into pulling people into these special operations and deploying them. Um, it's, it's a little bit like... Uh, you know, it makes me think a little bit of how you would you would do something in the military, right? You, everybody understands the systems that are in place. Everyone knows the job that they're playing. There's a high degree of organization, um, and you can pull in essentially emergency troops to, to come deal with it. So not to militarize the response, but just to give people an image that you're essentially calling in a special team. You're scaling up our op operations, but you're bringing in people who are trained and have done this before, sometimes in the exact same country. Unfortunately, South Sudan has had a, had a famine um, within the last decade or so. Uh, Somalia, it's just five years back, unfortunately. And as we close, what can people do to help to respond to this situation? I mean, just typical folks like people listening to this podcast. So the first thing would be that people could reach out to their representatives, um, tell them that they think that this is important, uh, whether it's here in the U.S. or frankly, if we have listeners around the world, the Europeans are, are big donors and, and there are other countries that, that also need to hear that this matters to them. Um, here in the U.S., we have evidence that our Congress is going to support, support this on a bipartisan basis. There have been outspoken um, advocates for increasing funding for response to the famine on both sides of the aisle. And while the president's uh, proposed budget uh, actually zeroed out food aid, uh, there's been a response from Congress that would indicate they will be fully funding or, or will look to um, be generous in that in the funding for, for the food uh, food aid given the famine conditions. And as I said, there's already been additional monies put forward by Congress this year alone. So one is tell people that you care and that you that you think this matters. The second would be people can make individual donations and, and they can choose uh, organizations like Save the Children or uh, Mercy Corps or... Um, uh, Doctors Without Borders, uh, those are organizations that often are in the most dire conditions from a security standpoint, care, uh, and I could name off others. I don't mean to, to point them in the direction, but there are several that would, would be uh, 
staying in these conditions even if the conflict accelerates. And then, of course, I've been mentioning the World Food Program. Um, you can donate to the World Food Program directly, or WFP USA is a, a registered 501c3 here in the U.S. that can accept donations to support the World Food Program. So find an organization that you trust, um, that you know something about the work for them and, and, and feel that they're doing good work, uh, and make a donation yourself. And then I think the third thing I would say is um, to educate yourself and not allow yourself to sink into apathy. Um, I, I, th I think it's very easy with all the, the, the bad news that sometimes people hear around the world to, to not let this uh, be absorbed uh, into, our, into our minds that these are real people behind the numbers. Um, and when you know a little bit more, um, I think it's harder to uh, forget. And just, again, you, you knowing about it, you sharing it with someone else, reminding them that something like this is happening, that they could act as well, makes a difference. Great. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast to share with us uh, a better understanding of what's going on with this issue. And it's clearly something that we'll want to revisit and check in with you uh, again down the road and see how the how progress is, is occurring. So thanks for being Happy here. Happy to come back. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Deep Dish on Global Affairs. Please note that the opinions you heard today are those of the people who express them and not the institutional positions of the Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, please take a moment to give us a review. You can find our show under Deep Dish on Global Affairs in iTunes, Overcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as on the Council's website at thechicagocouncil.org. Deep Dish on Global Affairs is produced by Evan Fazio. Our research associate today was Grace Burton, and our editing intern is Grant Whitaker. I'm Brian Hansen, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.